Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we're not able to play you the original intro of this episode taken from the film. So here's an imitation. Oh, yes, I believe. I believe in death. I believe in disease. I believe in injustice. I mean humanity. And torture. And anger. And hate. I believe in murder. I believe in pain. I believe in cruelty and infidelity. I believe in slime and stink. I mean every crawling, putrid thing, every possible ugliness and corruption. You son of a bitch. Objectives to describe Henrik's way of approaching movies in this podcast. <laughs> well, especially your picks for the films. My like Inhumane and Torture are, are like a like couple of the first that comes into mind whenever you make a pick. A lot of trash comes to mind when, when I let you pick anything in this podcast. Then I have to course correct. <laughs> Those were all things that my uh, priest told me after I gave my first confession. Mm, what kind of confession might that be? Oh, you know, the same old, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been six days since my last confession. I was possessed by the devil, and I spun my head around, and I defamed the Virgin Mary statue that's there in the by the pulpit. You know, just the usual. Uh, at, the, at the end of your confession, did the priest believe in your slime? And stink. And stink. He, stink is alive. He believed in my slime, but not the stink. But I wear deodorant. And so that is, I'm looking to get maybe a, a promotion deal with Old Spice so that I can, you know, parlay that into some sort of career. The only thing that I'm going to be believing in tonight is going to be Monster Energy Drink to stay awake. And <laughs> so, yeah. The, and then, then all of a sudden you realize that. Wait a minute, it's it's the wrong day and recording is tomorrow. Could be for the best. You have no idea what's gonna be ahead of us. And I'm I'm sure Henrik's gonna have pretty creative opinions here. But you know Before we get into those, I, I a quick little wrap up from a previous episode. Oh god. Since talking <laughs> about cannibalism <laughs> <laughs> Since our last episode of cannibalism, I just want to say, for for the record, I was uh, a vegetarian for four and a half days after that. I have now gone back to eating meat, but it stuck with me for four and a half days that I did not eat meat. And now I'm wondering, 
A, has did any of you have any similar predilections? And two, um, what is this episode going to do to us? Like, you're awake for 25 hours. When you go to sleep after this, is it going to be nothing but spinning heads and defamed Virgin Marys and dead priests? Yeah, no, I didn't have any issues. I don't have a soul. <sighs> well, defamed Virgin Marys and ill-filled priests is something like well, that is pretty usual for Kari. Welcome to the Flick Lab, by the way. And so, yeah. <laughs> I'm Karri, been living in Malaga, Spain. Studied media. My co-host is also somebody. <laughs> he, he's nobody. <laughs> God damn it, I'm not going to do your intros anymore. Well, uh, <laughs> let, 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 let me try. I'm Henrik, uh, been living in Jämsänkoski, Pallivaha, Finland. <laughs> I'm I study sad. arts at the University of Lapland. <laughs> Was that also an impression of his accent as well? I tried. A little, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> uh, I'm Zach. I'm an American living in Boston. And I'm a film nerd. Went to school to study it as well. It's time for you to go to your next confession, though, since you stopped your vegetarianism. And, uh, you know, alongside with all of your other kinky things that you're doing. Uh, I do get a little squirrely every now and then. And uh, like to, oh god, I was about to say, guys, so. guys, 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 <laughs> this, this is not that type of podcast. <laughs> I was ready to go there. I was ready to go, and then something in the back of my head said, "Don't, Zach, pull it back, pull it back, don't go there." So yeah, this is a bi-weekly podcast focusing on <clears throat> chit chat for the first five minutes. Let's try to move on a little bit quicker. On today's episode, we'll be discussing what exactly. I forgot. A Land Before Time. Oh. The John Bluth classic. How did that song go? If we hold on together, we might just see dinosaurs. Okay. <clears throat> no, please continue. Give us more. It's what the people want. <laughs> Give the people what they want. We'll be discussing exorcism. and Oh yeah, Henrik. <laughs> I I'm really curious though. Let's get a few things out of the way before we get in. Like, what is the starting point here? Do you believe in demon possession? Oh, okay. I, I'm not gonna actually answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer it. In fact, I thought it was. Uh, I think that's a, a good intro. Uh, I was also wondering if we could maybe even talk about everyone's sort of religious experiences. We don't have to go into giving everyone's testimony, but maybe at least where you're coming from from watching these films. I. I currently do not believe in demon possession i don't believe in demons or the devil or i'm not convinced that a god exists but that's a far cry from where i was raised which was a highly devout christian reading the bible every day praying every day going to church three times a week so at one point i was very much convinced of this and the first time i ever saw the exorcist the original um i was a believer and so it is very interesting to watch it in, in that frame of mind and to rewatch it in my current frame of mind. I think there is no solid proof whatsoever of any kind of a demon possession having been taken place. There's nothing that you cannot put into the can of mental illness and all the sort. But who knows like what kind of a powers there are? We, we don't know everything. 
but most of them are, of course, just stories and misunderstandings. Have you played, uh, Wu how do you fucking pronounce this? Wuchi boards. Wuchi. Wuchi. I have never. As a younger person, it went against my beliefs, and so I never fucked around with that, because I saw The Exorcist as a child, and I know what happens when you play with a Ouija board. You get Mr. Howdy coming by for a little knock-knock afternoon tea. Would you dare to try a, a Ouija session? Perhaps? Maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, on my end, I, I have played with it. That explains and a lot. I found the the experience well. It, it it was exciting and and somewhat illuminating, but it also was a major disappointment. Like I I do I it, it did give me an appreciation towards the kind of unnoticeable muscle spasms that that your your body has and and the connection that those spasms can have to your subconscious. Like I, there is a a certified connection in at least in my based on my experience between those those micro movements within your muscle tissue and and your subconscious, and that was quite fascinating, and I did enjoy experiencing that. But as something that is supposed to give you some kind of a you know connection to the other side and into ghosts or dark forces or something like that. On that front, it was a complete letdown. Yeah, that whole description of that that phenomena that happens when apparently you play, that's kind of hard to grasp. Maybe I should try to kind of understand what the hell that phenomena is all about. Hypnosis. Any experience on that front? That's, of course, mm. uh, generally, it's seen as um, pseudoscience. Uh, no, yeah, don't believe it. I've had someone try to hypnotize me you know like one of those uh, people on the streets uh you know who can do like a tarot card reading or or such mm. and uh no i was not put under any trance yeah that's only because he said that you will forget everything when you wake up god damn it i myself i haven't tried hypnotism ever i i've been semi-curious to someday go through the through the experience but i haven't been interested enough i haven't believed enough in hypnotism to actually you know see to go through all the trouble that you would have to do in order to get get yourself time scheduled in hypnotism so no yeah same here no experience synchronizers no experience apart from heretic obviously a completely fictional vehicle yeah, bullshit. The Exorcist, the first one. Henrik, what's your what's your general experience with the film? Uh, I originally saw saw the film when I was something like eleven. <laughs> I or I or I have saw saw it. Came from the telly. My mom mom was actually watching it, and I tried to watch it. Managed to get like halfway through, but it got too scary for me. Have to quit. O only for my mom will then come and you know spoil me the the whole thing. Anyways, later on, uh, there was the the version you never seen cut that came out, which I I don't know what 
that exactly is. People often talk about it as a director's cut, but that's untrue. The, the released version is the, the director's cut. I don't know if, if the version you've never seen is more like Pilates cut of the film. But anyways, when that came out, it had a theatrical run in Finland. I managed to live in, in a place where the local film theater let the underage kids in <laughs> to, to see basically all the K-18 R-rated material in, in Finland. That's when I managed to finally see it on big screen. I, I've kind of been fan of the film. And that the franchise in in general, not the individual films per se, but but I do like have in my possession all the films except Dominion. Zach, your experience with the film, when did you first see it? I think the first time I saw The Exorcist was when I was... 14 maybe 13 14 i've always been a lover of film uh my parents knew that and supported that and one of the ways they supported that was by showing me and renting films that i was way too young for uh but they knew were good films and this was one of them uh my mother knew that it was a good film and rented it and i'm not sure if i saw the theatrical cut or i was around 14 whenever the the version you've never seen quote unquote came out 2000 so yeah i i'm not sure which one i saw but it was around that time holy shit fuck and a half it scared the ever-loving jesus hell out of me it was one of the most terrifying things i'd ever seen had nightmares for several nights i'm sure slept with the light on Maybe even slept in my parents' room. Who knows? But also was able to recognize how masterful it was, even at such a young age. As I've gotten older and rewatched it, I'm able to tell even more so how masterful it is. And it's become less scary over time, especially in our torture porn generation of, you know, just what, how much shit can we put on screen? So I think it, it has become generally less scary over time. But uh, it is still... Uh, terrifying and wonderful. Yeah, I always have had the, the uh, opinion that The Exorcist, it's it, it's kind of a, a generation piece. Like, if you managed to originally see the movie at the right time, like, there, there was a specific time slot that since now has already gone and ended, but if, if you managed to, to catch the movie on the right time, then it may be like one of the scariest horror films that you have experienced. These days, the general audiences, are, we perhaps are too desensitized to actually, like, if you would be fresh to horror today, or, or if you hadn't ever seen The Exorcist before, and this would be like your first day ever watching the film, most likely you would be so desensitized by other horror films that The Exorcist no longer would actually do anything for you. And you would be wondering, like, where where does the reputation as, as the scariest horror film of all time really come from? But if you would be li like, like us, that you have seen it before that desensitization happens, and before the horror genre moved into this more growly, more violent direction... In that case, you can actually, like, really have a pants-shitting, terrifying experience with the film. I think it's kind of like those couple of 
shots that still hold up very well today in the horror side of things but it's not only about that it's also a good movie not just a, as a horror movie the fir first time that i saw it i think was when i was at my summer house which has no elect electricity whatsoever but the cars have electricity so we had like my 14 inch tv that we put on top of the car and it was taking electricity from from the car socket and we just put it on around 10 11 at night and the exorcist was coming from tv the quality of the image wasn't really good with the antenna and everything being in the middle of no absolutely nowhere and i was with a lot of my family members and the screen was obviously very small yeah so it wasn't like any kind of a optimal environment for scaring the living shit out of you but still i remember it definitely had an effect on me i just have to say the scenario in which you just described watching this film is the nightmare for directors in hollywood that their works of art are being watched on a tiny 14-inch television with an antenna sticking up in the air catching a, a terrible signal. This is You are the people Martin Scorsese fears. Well, it was the era when even the directors, I think, were desensitized for this shit because everybody's works were being raped on TV all the time. It was back in, still, I think, the late 90s. So, But now we have the 4K Blu-rays. Well, today everything is just in Netflix. So you are basically watching everything, either either from your 8K flat screen mega wall mount TV, or then you are watching it from your shitbox TV or your laptop. Like that's where the movies these days are being shown in your tiny little laptop screens. <laughs> and I have to throw out a little recognition to Boston. Because when this film came out in 1973, Boston tried to ban it. It was too much, it was too scary, it was too obscene. Uh, and they, yeah, they tried to ban the film from being screened here in town. But they were able to continue that. And was it like the, the cops then took control? Was it also in Boston that you couldn't take kids into the shows? Yes, it eventually did get shown. You know, they the, they tried for a very short time but failed. But, you know, Boston, if, if you're unfamiliar, is a very, very Catholic city. Catholicism is the predominant religion of those who are religious here. So I can see how the Catholic Church might have been a little wary of wanting to show it um, and not wanting to cause any, any rifts or to give a bad name to the church but how my how far we've come if you want to be kind of a take the religious route of the filming of the film you know there were some accidents or interesting situations where nine people in the production or close to the production died during the production or around the production and the fire destroyed the majority of the set and they had to take like a six or so weeks off and then continue you know there there were a lot of problems and injuries what was supposed to be about a hundred days of shooting became a 200 day shoot yeah if the legend has it uh, basically the accidents didn't stop like like they continued to a point where ellen person got like permanently injured and at that point it was when friedkin finally gave in and actually called 
a priest to come in and bless the set. That would be the point after which the, the accident and all the other unexplainable shit on the set kind of came to an end. I watched the documentary, official documentary, and the, that gave the, the image that they were going to have priest bless the place, but then was it Blady or Friedkin that then said, no, 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 we don't want any more paranoia into the set. And the shit kept, kept happening. Well, it added to the mystique for the film, for sure, not to minimalize people's accidental deaths on, on set, but I think it's things like that that uh, helped the film gain this mystique and this aura of, oh my goodness, this film is, is, is this film cursed by the devil? Uh, what, what is this film? And really built up the hype. I mean, I, I think probably not since Psycho had there been such hype about a horror film. I mean, there were many reports of people passing out in the theater because it was too much for them, people vomiting in the theater because it was too much of them and having to be taken out by paramedics. I mean, it was definitely uh, an aura surrounding this film, which I'm sure helped it do very well at the box office and in subsequent critical acclaim. Yeah, it's kind of hard to verify some of this, but reportedly there would have been even a heart attack or heart attacks miscarriages and yeah like you said fainting and vomiting but what did happen is that there were some ambulances on call for some theaters just in case this these things would happen there were reports that maybe this should have been an x-rated film but it didn't get that it got the r rating and then there were insinuations that mbaa the ratings board would have been just following the studio recommendation, what the studio wanted to do, of course. If it would have been an X-rated film, then kids are not allowed and it will heavily affect the visibility of the movie. I don't know about the power of the studios. May have pl played a role at the, at the end of the proceedings, but Friedkin really had to fight against the MPAA to, in, in order to get that uh, R rating. Basically... Right after MPAA gave in and the film got its R, there immediately started to also be boycotts against the movie and against MPAA itself by, by parents and religious groups that felt that the movie is going to be overly harmful and will kind of lead into kids getting into Satanism and Satan worship. Well, the MPAA has a giant stick up its ass and has for many decades. Uh, I mean, this is the same organization that if you show two people kissing, it's no big deal. But if those two people happen to be of the same gender, they're like, oh, this is an R-rated film, where you can show someone getting their head sawed off by a chainsaw, and they're like, okay, we'll give that an R. And then you show a vulva, and they're like, oh my god, this is NC-17, and c cannot be shown. <sighs> you know, these people. Yeah, these, these standards are, I guess, the other way around in Europe, for the most yeah, part. Yeah, they are. Kind of these weird cultural things. Can't show a nipple on Instagram, but yeah, violence, all good. Which is one of the reasons that one of the most successful franchises out of Europe, out of the UK, the James Bond series, is famous for Bond kills a ton of people, and you don't see one drop of blood. He, like, shoots people and they just fall down. The death death toll is very high, but there's not a lot of blood. About the film's world, it's made to be 
pretty realistic. It's otherwise very down to earth, but then it's a kind of a fascinating choice to make the mother a film star in the film, but otherwise the family is as normal as they come. But perhaps adding that film star element kind of lends this further credence because the, then there is a, the film star and, and the whole film aspect in, in the world. Maybe it contributes into the realism. Then the kind of audience might kind of forget that, yeah, I'm not watching a movie or the other way around. Hard to say. But I think it was a very, pretty conscious the, choice. The whole film star, the, the whole film star profession of the mom, it, it's, it, it doesn't come up per se in, in the movie, but it's kind of major background plot point in, in the original novel and basically the demon's plan in the story. Well, at least we get to the film set of the star in this in this uh, director's cut version. I'm not sure if it's in the theatrical cut, I don't think so. If I remember correctly, it is in the theatrical cut also. Okay. There really is not that much stuff in, uh, new stuff in, in the version you've never seen. Yeah, did they kind of expand the the introductions of the characters in the director's cut, though? Um, not really, no. Okay. Uh, the, the major changes uh, introductory-wise would be that, once again, going off from the memory, uh, because there's some time I've last checked the, the theatrical version that's been really unattainable in Finland unless you taped it when, when it played on TV or you have like an age-old Finnish VHS copy of the first release of the movie, but relying a lot to my memory here. But if memory serves me correct, the theatrical cut does not have the opening showing Chris's apartment. It harsh opens from in, in, from, uh, in Afghanistan. So basically those, those city establishing shots at the beginning of the film, they are not in the theatrical version. There's also some added material about Marin in Afghanistan. But once again, nothing really that major, just, you know, individual shots. You mean in Iran? It's actually Iraq. Uh, Iraq, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thereabouts. <laughs> oh boy. The, the Middle East. Yeah. But only problem that I have with the character introductions is that so many characters are already established to be connected to each other before they get down to business. Like the mother of the family is contacting the, the, the priest, Father Karas, but the Father Karas is already a fan of the mother's acting, so he appears on the film set, of course. The mother also sees him at some kind of a side alley talking to a to, to his colleague that is a bit distracting yeah I, to go back to just the fact that she's a an actress for a second i I'm, i haven't read the original novel uh, i understand that it is very very good though i like the fact that she's an actress or or, or a, a, a movie star because she's not just an actress she's a star people know people know her face they know her name I like this because I think it gives her power. She makes things happen because she has notoriety and she has money. And so when her daughter says, "Oh, can we please get a horse?" she's like, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to get a horse." 
I mean, for someone to be to say, oh, yeah, that's. I mean, I think at first she says we'll have to wait and see, but then she changes her mind and says, yeah, we're gonna get the horse. Horses are expensive, and you don't only buy the horse; you have to have a place to keep them, and you have to, all that stuff. And I think it's a demonstration of, oh yeah, I can make things happen. I can just say yes to things, and things happen. And then when this thing happens to her daughter, she is stripped of all power. You can take her to all the doctors you want. To, you want to see. You can take her to all the psychiatrists, and you can have all the tests run that you want. You have no power over this anymore because this is no longer an issue in which you have some sort of influence. This is above you. Yeah, that's so. I think that sets smart. up a very interesting dynamic. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing when I now watched the film for, for today's episode. And so, something that came to my mind is that the, the experience with uh, in, in the story might be really different. Had the family not been rich and famous, but quite poor. Like, all, all those moments, I'm, I'm going to ha- have to have like the fifth CCT scan of, of my daughter's brain activity or I, I must have this this shrink doing doing home visits and all, all that stuff could be easily be something that you just wouldn't get if if you would be poor enough and against that backdrop that the priests at the end of the day showing up at the apartment is is equaling the ground because priests usually like uh, you, you don't have to like typically pay money for the priest for the home visit. They can do it. They they do it, and it, it's not like well, this is gonna cost you five hundred thousand bucks. Like it can be with you taking your daughter to to hospital and having her brain scanned. Those proceedings are extremely expensive. Having priests to your home basically costs you nothing. That's would be an alternative that would be open also for the poor family. Yeah, and in the poor family's situation, if the mother would hear about the possession of her daughter, she would most likely be just like, a possession? For fuck's sake. I, I need to just go buy the potatoes now. Enough <laughs> trouble already. Yeah, I, I have to go and do my fifth job. Right. Wait, my daughter's possessed. There's another person up there in her bedroom. Great, can they pay rent? Can they help out on the utilities? <laughs> I mean, if they chip in 200 bucks a month, I'm willing to say fine. <laughs> Again, a story that would only be possible in the States. <laughs> where healthcare is a problem. I was kind of interested that many found some of them, even the most horrifying scenes to be the ones at the doctors with these intricate tests that, that at least some of them are, I understand, not performed anymore. I was like, yeah, well, you know, it's a machine making a lot of noise around your head. What are you freaking out about? Is it the blood from the vein that everybody's freaking out about? Yeah, I believe so. I would say um, it's, it's the style and tone of those scenes. They are very matter of, matter of fact. They are very documentaristically made. Yes. Like Friedkin, before he started to make features, he had background in documentary film. And that's something that really shows in the way how Exorcist is is directed. Another thing that I, I would say, once again, this, this is kind of time period related. When you watch the film, exactly how you are going to feel about the medical, the, the hospital scenes. But there is kind of an alienation that we start to have when it comes to scientific equipment. You and I and, and Zach, we kind of now present 
a generation that is in in the turning point between the the old tech which is something that you see for example in the exorcist and between this new tech that is far removed from well the machines you have in the film and I, I would say the the generation next following us they are the ones who are completely born into this this world of slick thin glowy tech like, like since you don't no longer know by looking at it, what that machine is supposed to do and how you are supposed to operate it, it starts to become kind of alien to you. That feeling of alienation between you and the piece of machinery can actually feel quite intimidating. I've noticed that horror media, games and movies these days, they more and more they start to rely on spaces which not necessarily are that old, in, in the uni- film's universe, that the film itself may be set upon, even to the present day, but those spaces might have equipment that is either really old, or equipment that looks really old, and really old here meaning scientific equipment from the 60s and 80s. And I would say that major reason why that is now a growing trend in, in horror media is precisely because of this feeling of alienation, because you no longer actually understand what the hell that piece of machine is that you are looking at. In the documentary-esque setting of the film, I want to stick with this point for a while, because for the success of the film, I think that's a gargantuan point. The film largely works because of this. Well, I think my most of my favorite films are like that, that the the world around you in the film is extremely grounded, almost documentary-esque. But then in that grounded world, there are crazy shit happening. And that somehow makes it more terrifying or more meaningful. It does lend the, the narrative or, or the film some level of believability and, and credit. And that's some, something that actually becomes a returning point with The Exorcist where the first one is not the only one that takes a documentaristic approach. When it comes to a documentary style used as a form for the filmmaking and and telling the story, it's most prominent in the first film, but the third film in the series, Legion, even though not as strongly as as the first one, but it still has its leg firmly in the documentaristic style. It, it's kind of like police procedural documentaristically filmed. It's kind of a, like a Proto-7, in a sense. With, with the Exorcist franchise, the best films of the franchise are those that somehow has that, that documentaristic kind of, kind of a feeling or tone to them. And the more far removed the mo- a- any given film in the franchise is from, from the documentaristic style, the more... It's actually gonna suck. Something to keep in mind when we get to the the prequels in the franchise. Uh, getting back to the medical treatments, I do think it is fascinating that the tests that she undergoes, they are very visceral, and I completely agree with you, Henrik. It is the way that they're shot. It's very unsettling. It's it appears to be very real, and part of that is because they're medically accurate. This is the way that medicine was done at that time. They don't do that anymore, and I don't think they were. I think they were moving away from those types of procedures 
uh, being done in that way uh, at the time. But from my understanding, the film, those scenes from the film were shown in medical schools for years because it was a very realistic depiction of it. It is very unsettling seeing that blood squirt out of that, the, the tube coming from her neck. It's very unsettling. And the fact that it pulses too, it's very unsettling. And then, yeah, she gets put into this machine to get this EEG and you hear that pounding, that bam, 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 bam. I mean, it was, (laughs) it's enough to make me claustrophobic and I'm not even getting the damn test. You were going to ask some question in this episode, right? Regarding can the demon be only Christian in nature? I don't understand what this question means. No, obviously not. There's so many sites to offer in the Asian market for that and elsewhere in the world when it comes to demons. Well, if you if you want to go to the Asian market and you know talk about the demons in those films, yeah, I think that. But yeah, we're, I guess when we're talking about American films, yeah, which I find fascinating that we've never really seen any exorcism films that deal with Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or really any other religion. Anytime there's a problem where someone is possessed by a demon there's never any real specification of what kind of demon. It's just, just, even if it's just said a demon, the answer is always, well, we need a priest. But what if that demon is Jewish? Would the exorcism work? Zach, ain't you a lucky boy? Welcome to the Flick Lab. Because the answer to your question actually is, you just haven't watched the right films. (laughs) We can can actually, if if you want, we we can do like like a sequel episode. Sequel quotation marks to the today's The Exorcist episode where we watch like different type of exorcism movies. Yeah, well, well, the the Western Judeo-Christian demon kind of has the, the major place when it comes to exorcism movies. All, all the other demons also have had their shot at the exorcism market also. Since you mentioned it, there are the films centering around Jewish demons. There is at least one Turkish exorcism movie, which is bad shit insane and completely terrible. A cinematic testament to exactly why the Turks would never try to do exorcism movies. But like, like they, they do exist, even though for us the most well-known would be like the, the, the exorcism movies that deal with Christian demons. Yeah, the Thai movie Rathri Flower of the Night is obviously a parody of The Exorcist, but I'm not sure if it was supposed to be some kind of a local demon that they then kind of awakened there. Yeah, Rathri Flower of the Night. Something to perhaps to note is that in the movie The Exorcist, it, it starts in a country that is first and foremost an Islamic country. And then this priest goes into this country and finds something related to Christianity there. A Christian demon and gets kind of a warning, I suppose, about the oncoming Christian demon. Anyway, finds this small statue there. So the film kind of acknowledges different religions. Zach, does does Washington look as miserable as it is in, in the film? Like the, the establishing shot already gives you like this rainy, really dark and uh, f- fucking boring look <laughs> to the to the city. It is <laughs> that's it is an interesting thing that um, 
the, the 70s films have this look to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think of like 70s cinema, there's there's always this sort of dark, grungy, grainy film uh, quality to it. You see it here. You see, it, you know, things like Taxi Driver. And oh, part of me yeah. wonders, like, what? Were we just really dirty in the 70s, or, or was this just a stylistic choice? Or, I mean, by all means, New York City used to be gross and grimy and crime-ridden, and, you know, Times Square was where you went to go to, to the, see the porno theaters, and it's, you know, definitely changed a lot. But, man, yes, it definitely looks quite, quite grungy and grimy in our American capital city. It does not look like that now. It's been nice and gentrified by rich white folk and, you know, pushed all the people of color out of the neighborhood. So it looks much better now. That said with sarcasm, in case that was not caught. Yeah, I don't know if industrial look would be a good word for it. Any thoughts about Father Karras look, giving a disgusted look at the subway station bum? Was he possessed or was it just a bum? Like, ooh, I don't deal with these people. No, it was... It was just that particular bomb, because that was some nasty-ass bomb, tell you that. I think Father Karras is, I mean, in in many ways, I think that the the film, while it probably is first and foremost a the story of, of Reagan and her journey, but wow, this is also Father Karras' journey from this sort of broken, broken person who has lost his faith and is having to keep up the charade and wear the collar every day and go to work every day and just pretend that he still believes this and dealing with his mother dying, which is one of the most horrific (laughs) sequences there is, is her in in that hospital and then see her through Reagan later lying in bed. It is so horrific. His journey is magnificent. I think that... Jason Miller gave a spectacular performance. He was nominated for an Academy Award. He's just a jewel and a gem in this film. Yeah, there are a couple of those shots that may not be absolutely clear why why they are there, like like the, like the bum shot or or like the shot in at least in the director's cut when we have the horse carriage and the lady there almost bumping into Marin. Marin is in Iraq doing some digging shit. It, and that, that just seems to not serve any other purpose than maybe perhaps the kind of the showing the frailty of Father Marin in being a little bit out of the zone. Yeah, I think it, I think it's probably to show that. It sets the major tone or, or the major thematical point of the film, the opening Iraq section. Uh, in, in Iraq, what, what Marin... Essentially, he is doing his his uncovering the vodka bottle. <laughs> he's uncovering the buried religious items. That's kind of a ties in the basically the overall point of the film, which is that when the the possession really starts, uh, Chris McNeil and Reagan they both live now in a in a modern society where science is kind of ruling over the religion and where the scientific equipment rules over religious artifacts. And that's kind of showcased in when Reagan starts to become possessed and Chris's 
first response to the situation is to go to the professional, go to go to the medical experts, to and and to the shrinks to try to find out what is either physically or mentally wrong with her daughter. And it's only after all of those attempts come to nothing that Chris starts to consider the, the more spiritual options. And in doing so, she too kind of once again uncovers something that has been more or less buried by the society. That is the connection to the church and using basically the church's tool set to deal with the problem instead of science. There's very much this secular connection to the film that the family is non-believers and uh, Father Kara's having this little bit of a inner crisis of faith and I think that that works as a kind of a the, the journey of the film that you know, Father Kara's returns back to God <laughs> and maybe it makes the film a little bit more terrifying that hey that this can actually happen even in a secular house and therefore this is real whether you want to believe in it or or not and then also, it kind of wants to say, like what Blatty, I think, intended here, is to say that you have to come to God to, to do it right, to get over this. And if you're, if you're a non-believer, then, you know, uh, this is the journey of them becoming believers. Yeah, I do have to say, I think it's just beautifully, beautifully done how Chris McNeil and Reagan, they go... They go to the doctor and they just see the one doctor. It doesn't really work out. He prescribes her Ritalin and then, well, she has to go back for more tests. Now that doctor is consulted with another doctor. So now there's two doctors. And then they don't really see anything on the scans. So then they call in a third doctor. And then by the end, she's sitting in that room and there's 15 people. There's 15 doctors in white coats all sitting there. I, I, do, I love the building of that, of the, the desperation of, well, let's try this. Well, let's, let's bring in this department. Let's run these tests. Let's try, if not medicine, then let's try psychiatry. Let's try this. Let's, I mean, I like that she's portrayed as she's really turning over every stone. And then someone then makes the suggestion of, well, let's try this instead. Let's contact a priest. Which doctor? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is what she thinks it is at first until shit goes batshit fucking crazy and she's like okay that's it let's call the priest speaking of interesting moments there's more plenty different kinds of things like the visitor Burke in the party starts calling the other guy a Nazi all of a sudden you go, why why do we have it here any thoughts uh, why he's calling the guy a Nazi or why is that scene in the film mostly why why the scene is there to, to establish that Burke is is Kind of a major class asshole. Yeah, and drunk. Yeah, and drunk. And, and ex extremely hostile while he's drunk. That is something that ties into a possible uh, subtext in the movie. Not something that the movie, or I, I don't believe that the movie is about, but a subtext that you can kind of see in the movie, even, though, even if, that would be unintentional from the maker's part. And that is the possibility that the film is about sexual abuse and work could be a sexual abuser. Once again, not making the case that that is. I, I don't believe that the film is, is intentionally about sexual abuse. And I don't think that 
the film scenario that it presents is a sexual abuse scenario, but once again, something that you can read into the movie as a subtext. Most of that subtext revolves around the character of Burke. And because of that, you kind of really need Burke to be an asshole. They are the movie just kind of being desperate. How, how do we get Burke out of this house so we can make the kind of a 50-50 chance if this was some kind of a possession shit or some demonic exercise going on or he just fell and twisted his entire head around. So how, how can we get Burke out of this household? Well, he's going to just keep shouting these Nazi allocations like, yeah, let's keep that in. Uh, you meaning what exactly? Because he is kicked out of the house basically after this whole Nazi incident inside the house. Yeah. And then he goes and breaks his brain. There are actually some time passes before between Perk being kicked out of the party and Perk being killed. Yeah, but those are connected, right? He's kicked out of there and therefore he goes drunk somewhere and therefore he breaks himself. No, they are not connected. It happens on a separate okay. day. Oh, okay, fuck it then. <laughs> yeah, because he... Yeah, that happens after... Yeah, days later when they're coming back from the hospital and Sharon has to leave to go pick up the meds and ask Burke to watch the to watch her, that whole thing. Okay, so kind of meaningless then. I do think it at least serves uh, the purpose of yeah demonstrating that Burke is a, a quite a bit of a drinker, a little rowdy. Perhaps I don't I don't know why he's turned into this sort of not likable character, exactly. especially knowing that we're gonna kill him. If he were, let's say it was Sharon, the the nanny, who was the one thrown out the window. Well, we like her. She's sitting here helping this family. But so the uh, fact that we're portraying him as being an asshole just to go kill him later, I think is an interesting choice. And perhaps there's something in the book about that. I don't know. I don't like her at all. I, I would have Sharon? Yeah, let's just get rid of Sharon. <laughs> then you really hated the sequel. Oh, well, I did hate Sharon in that movie as well. What the hell is, <laughs> hell is her problem? Just saying... About somebody else's daughter, that that bitch. Seriously, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> but right after Burke is, gets kicked out of the house, we do have that incredible scene of all the adults around the piano singing, having a, what was it, in the 1970s, and a, a great adult time, singing show tunes around the piano. And then she comes in, tells the astronaut, that he's going to die in space, and then pisses the floor. It's astonishing. <laughs> I would have loved to have been in a theater in 1973 watching that. She tells the astronaut that he's, that he's going to die. When she walks into the room, she says, you're going to die up there, who then looks very bewildered, and then she pisses herself. Up there as in, as in heaven or in space. <laughs> what, and which was, so what's how, great. How come uh, you, you, you guys are so against Burke, but you really like the astronaut character, because the astronaut character is even less of a figure in the movie than Burke. He's because less of a figure, but we we know fewer bad things about him. Yeah, he's an astronaut. But, but you kind of need to know the bad things about Burke in order to tie into the theme of sexual vulgarity and sexual violence, which come into play when Regan is being possessed. And you kind of need... a like like a character for that, and the chosen character is Burke, who is the most vulgar and most sexual character in the movie. Huh. Astronauts are the men of science. They only operate on logic and sense. 
Nay, actually, mostly they just operate on feelings and luck, as we saw in the Mars episode. Well, that was a bit of a hiccup on NASA's part. I give you that. Well, what, what I love, if um, right after that, Chris is bathing her because she's pissed herself, so she's bathing her and she's trying to talk to her, and and then she goes and puts her in bed, and Reagan's very confused because she's sort of in and out of this of the possession and. She's like, what's wrong with me, mom? And she's like, you know, it's just the nerves. You just got to take your medicine and you're going to be fine. And then she comes out. The maid is like cleaning the the pee stain on the carpet. And you think like, oh my gosh, that was so weird. Like, and you're waiting for the scene to end. But the scene has only just begun. And then you start hearing screams. Chris runs back into that room and you're, she's in the middle of this. I mean, I, I can barely even describe it. <laughs> this insane image of this the bed shaking her oh my gosh it's crazy and i think to me that is one of the greatest moments of horror and suspense uh it's it's this is freaking masterful stroke at saying i'm just gonna give you a piece of this because we know at the end shit's gonna go real crazy real fast so i'm gonna give you just a taste this is just an, an amuse-bouche just an appetizer of how crazy this is gonna get but it's the time between the scream that you hear and then Chris running back up the stairs, running around the banister, going into the room, opening the door, the camera on her face first as you see the horror, and then we cut to seeing the, the, the bedroom and the bed shaking. To me, those seconds are full of such suspense of, oh God, oh God, oh God, what is this, what is this, what is this? And your your brain is scrambling as fast as possible to think, what am I about to see? What What is this going to be? Which is what's so beautiful of that, of, of these great suspenseful moments where Friedkin doesn't show you for a moment so that you can panic about what you're about to see. I just, it's wonderful. I love it. Yeah, the thing that these uh, effects are largely done mechanically is what I think also builds the credence for, for the film instead of doing it with some kind of a editing trickery. Uh, somebody yeah. said it in one of those documentaries that uh, there's kind of this exit early, arrive late going on in the film. Mm. That happens a lot that there is, for example, this shaking bed and then cut to something peaceful and end that there. Or there's this uh, spider woman stairs sequence. And then we cut away from that immediately. So you kind of give a glimpse and then it keeps you kind of keep on going on with the, with the film, I suppose. And then the arrive late aspect that you kind of see the aftermath of what just happened, which keeps your imagination running wild. What, what did just actually happen? Now let, let's be completely honest. The thing that actually works for you and makes the, those practical effects so effective for you is the actual careless attitude of the crew and Friedkin not giving a shit what happens in his set? Mm. Oh, absolutely. That that helps the proceedings as well. Hitting your your stars, slapping them, and then saying that the goo is gonna come to your stomach, and then it comes on your face. And well, was it some kind of a noise disturbance at the at the set at random in intervals? He fired a shotgun. To... Fired a fucking oh, shotgun next to somebody's eardrums. And then, you know, what this uh, lady actor broke her ass bone. Oh, yeah, the coccyx. Right, thank you. 
Yeah, poor Ellen Burstyn, who got the shit beat out of her making this picture, had permanent damage, I think, to yeah, her, her coccyx or one of her vertebra uh, from when she got thrown down on the floor. I mean, this is definitely the kind of filmmaking that could only happen in the 70s, or I think primarily happened a lot in the 70s. I'm, per- I'm sure there's still some crazy-ass filmmakers who are still trying to get away with this stuff now, but it's not nearly as prevalent where you can just put your actors through hell because it's what's going to get a, a good performance out of them. Well, I guess Henrik would agree with me here to, to say that these techniques, however old-fashioned they might be, they give some great results on screen. Actually, I've had, an, had a discussion about the, the, this exact same topic. Not the same director and not the same film, but about the same topic with two, two different directors. Quite recently. I actually really don't know. That could make a great future episode where we can actually think about how we approach movies from problematic directors. I will say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm sure that these actors, you know, weren't really forthcoming to appear in the sequel because of this. Oh, I'm sure Ellen Burstyn gave a big hell no when asked to do the second one. Yeah, well, Friedkin wasn't directing, but I can understand. And of course, there was the whole religious aspect and the kind of a backlash on some part, at least in the religious community, that this this could be kind of hot waters to dip your toes again. Yeah, and I think that overall the Catholic Church was not very pleased. Uh, I mean, I think exorcism is generally something the Catholic Church tries to keep in the back closet, you know, behind the winter coats. I don't think, I think it's a thing from the past that they no longer consider to be very useful. I think we've learned a lot about mental health and mental disorders that nowadays we realize that a lot of exorcisms that have happened over the years would have benefited more from psychiatry than from exorcism. I Uh, actually would strongly disagree with that. Oh, bring it. Well, when the exorcist came out, it, it is true that back then the whole business of exorcism was something Something of a relic of Catholic rituals and something that the church wasn't that interested in. Something that it kind of just wanted to, to left be forgotten in, in the back of the Catholicism closet and never bring it out to the light again. It wasn't completely abandoned practice, however, seeing how Platy originally based his novel in a real quotation marks exorcism case, the, the, the exorcism of John Doe, and the exorcist was originally meant to be a non-fiction book that Platy was was considering when he was in Jesuit training and later on changed his mind and made it a fictionalized account. As a result of the exorcist, people kind of finally learned about exorcism, about, you know, this, this ritual of Catholic Church, and all of a sudden exorcism began all the boom also, you know, the practitioners of Catholic faith to a point where it's a it's a major part of Catholic religion these days. Like Italy alone has what five hundred thousand exorcisms a year, depending on what sources you trust. Catholics all over the world, Catholic priests are being taught exorcism if they want to, you know, get deeper into it. It's a it's a kind of a a matter of choice. It's not mandatory for Catholic priests. You can be like a bishop or archbishop and 
not have the exorcist training, but that's something that is widely offered to you. Perhaps it depends on the country, but for example in Italy, exorcism is a major thing. Many of the Catholic priests have since stated that they actually quite like the exorcist, based on the fact that that is the film that made exorcism known to the general public. I think nowadays, sure, at the time, it was, you're right, it was still hidden in the, in the closet. But I think it's films like this and subsequent films, because then we, you know, we went through a sort of an exorcism hot moment there, and still exorcism films are being made, and they're quite popular, uh, where I think now it's become, oh, I hate to, to use these terms with such disregard, but it's almost become like a cool pop culture thing. And so I think it has become more accepted, and we've, they've brought it a little out of the closet because the public is a little more open to it because they've seen so many films about it. That being said, I still don't know if a psychiatrist isn't the best option for, for some of these. Again, as a person who doesn't believe that there's such thing as possession, uh, I think they probably all need psychiatrists. <laughs> and to get really jaded... Uh, and cynical. I wonder if there's any benefit that the Catholic Church gets from this, monetary or otherwise, from performing these exorcisms. I would believe that openly no, but it, of course, like, well, if you perform an exorcism on person A, and that person has, like, a family, and they are all churchgoers, and you have the collection box, money might end up going into that box. I'm not like 100% certain, but I strongly don't believe that Catholic Church is like selling exorcism as a as a oh, no. purchasable service. Of course, yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, I would put this into the same box with fixing some someone's sex, sexuality, and it's gonna be way more dangerous than to just not do it. Uh, if we could real quick, just as we're wrapping up the exorcist one, I just, it has to be said the makeup effects. Yes, please. Yes. For both Regan while she's in full possession mode from everything from her actual cosmetic makeup to give her that incredible look with the contact lenses, the life-size doll. So her head can turn around 360 to Max von Sydow, who looks in 1973 how he looked i think he just died last year how basically how he looked in game of thrones they looked exactly the same <laughs> never mind that those were 40 years apart precisely uh, his makeup is so good you would think if you did not know who any of these other actors were and you did not know that this film was made in 73 you would think oh they must have filmed this right before max von Sydow died i guess they shot this in 2016 it's incredible. It's incredible. And his performance is selling it as well. I mean, that I just have to mention the makeup. Yeah, old man makeup is something that Ridley Scott, for example, never actually learned, at least if you're going by Prometheus. Oof. Ouch. Had the makeup not been working in this film, this film would not work at all. It, it would do these days because there's all the, you know, in, in the version you've never seen before cut, they were able to, to put the CGI trash face effect on, you know, the demonic Regan shots. Are you, are you saying it would have been as 
fantastic as the hyenas in Dominion. Oof. Well, are you against the, the hyenas in, in Dominion? They are the, the height of CGI of early 2000s. You, I'm, I'm like, like once we get to the Dominion, I'm, I'm holding on you to defend the hyenas. Absolutely, anything from my hyena bros. <laughs> yeah. So the the makeup, and I also have to mention the sound production. It ended up winning the Academy Award for best sound. Uh, highly recommend watching this film with your like your Dolby surround sound system if you can or on a 14 inch television with rabbit ears sticking into the air you know whichever <laughs> it, it, it has it is perhaps the, the movie that has the best unfinished song used Tibular Palace by Mike Oldfield that the song that is uh, actually never finished because mm. Oldfield never gets the, the song done it's, it's like the, the case where whenever there is a new new recording technique, Oldfield always records Tupper Bells again because he has this the, the sound, the exact pitch-perfect correct sound trapped in his head and he's trying to, to like record that sound, that, that music, and he never actually fa- manages to do it. Dude's gonna fucking die without ever managing to record a perfect... Like 100% complete version of Tubular Bells. The, so- the version you have in The Exorcist is the unfinished version. Yeah, the toyed around version, I understand, by the filmmakers. Because the, the band wasn't satisfied with the version that is in the film. And said that, yeah, they didn't like what was done to it. Uh, and finally, a huge tip of the hat to, I think, the unsung hero of this film. And that is Academy Award winner... Mercedes McCambridge, yes. who provided the voice of the demon. I think it was a beautifully crafted decision to have a female give the voice because we typically think of the devil's voice as being male. And it would have been easy just to say, well, let's just bring in a man to do this, these voiceovers. But to keep it a, a female, because after all, it's still coming through Reagan's vocal cords. So it's still feminine vocal cords making these sounds. But then to have her who... According to reports, she chain-smoked and ate raw eggs and drank whiskey mm-hmm. and then was tied up to a chair so that she could deliver this performance so that she could struggle against the restraints. It's magnificent, and there's nothing like that voice. And because you're not hearing Linda Blair's voice being digitally altered, which would have this... We would all be able to tell, like, oh, that's still her voice. They've just sort of fucked with it and made it sound funny. Oh, no, no, like, you you hear a a clean, pure, pristine version of uh, Mercedes McCambridge's voice. It's terrifying and wonderful. Bill Farley was the hairstylist, Dick Smith, makeup artist, and Robert Layden, special makeup effects artist. Mm. So there you go. Mm. Tip of the hat. I'm smelling some heresy in the air. Would it be part two? Can I go on a rant? There. By all means. By all means. <laughs> what is this facility? What is this facility? It's what a, is happening? It's, it's, it's the Hexagon Medical Facility. It's, it's, it's fantastic, actually. Many of the sets are absolutely fantastic in this film. Need, need the, some the, proper the sets, focus. I will not deny beautifully done with the way of using glass and mirrors and light and shadow that is beautifully done it's undeniable 
But what is this facility? They have people who are in full catatonic states. There's people with Down syndrome. There's a deaf person. And then later, I think she's, the doctor says that, oh, this is a place for people with mental illness. Okay, well, Down syndrome is not mental illness. Deafness is not mental illness. But also, oh, well, we also look at people who have a history of demon possession. What is this facility? Well, I, I, I was kind of, kind of even more taken by, by the fact that autism is a, is a recorded mental illness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lu- Louise Fletcher, that is her name. Louise Fletcher, who plays the doctor. Who, by the way, uh, has deaf parents. Um, so she actually knows how to sign, which I think is very cool. But yeah, I just I don't un- understand what this facility is. So, so when she qualifies that deafness is a mental illness, she knows what she's talking. She- about. <laughs> she's speaking from experience, I guess. It's it's bizarre <laughs> to me. Totally bizarre. I guess the artists and the deaf people are on that clinic, hospital, mental care facility, whatever the fuck it is. Just, you know, to cause the, the other patients some type of anxiety. Because <laughs> as a mental health facility, that is most anxiety-producing place that you can come up with. That is the most mental facility for mentally sick people, <laughs> design-wise. <laughs> Everybody can see each other. Also, this was a troubled production. Many of the actors didn't want to return for different reasons. There were no permissions given to shoot in certain locations for example the exorcist staircase they weren't able to return there because washington said no no thank you and no stunts apparently who who knows why that 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 is something that i would like to know linda blair did her own stunts hanging in the fifth avenue looking down below almost killing herself i would suppose yeah that balcony i mean really who has that balcony Rich with, people. With sections where there's no yeah, railing. rich people. Rich people who can <laughs> jump off conveniently. Uh, rich people who go to Panopticon mental health facilities. Mm. There's a connection there. If you go to these Pentagon-shaped mental health facilities, you can't have railings on your balcony on Fifth Avenue. Ran out of budget there. But yeah, there were also these script nightmares. Several versions of the script were made. Was it like four or five different versions. Linda Blair said that whichever version she read was great and she was excited. Not least because Richard Burton was acting in the film and she was a big fan. Was he married to uh, Elizabeth Taylor at the time? I have no idea. I I guess he was married to Whiskey at the time. (laughs) That, yeah. (laughs) He was married to Elizabeth Taylor at the time. I just looked it up, yeah. Yeah, and it was a financial disappointment in the film. Well, it was on the plus side at the end of the day, but hugely, hugely disappointing. A surprisingly low budget was given to the film. Again, it seems that the studio was happy to go with this more psychological route for for this second film, instead of going with the obvious route of doing some kind of a repetition of the first one. So I will give props for the film for trying something different, at least. The execution of that... Yeah, the execution of that. Let's let's talk about that. How how well it did that, and I'm a bit mixed, as I think everybody is, but not as mixed as well, or as hateful towards this as the majority of people seem to be. Well, I I give the film this much. It's not lazy and it's really ambitious. Nothing comes off from that ambition. 
but it most definitely does have ambition. Yeah, it's a much more complicated plot-wise and everything-wise than the first one. So kind of in the same vein as the, the first one, which was ambitious. I think Boorman was really excited about this project and chose this precisely because of the script material. Well, well, only because of script material, because Borman was kind of infamous for the fact that he does not like The Exorcist. Yeah, so he was able to do something completely different than something that he, he was usually doing, as I understand. It's kind of a metaphysical, psychological, kind of out there, dreamy vibe film. I have to say, I, I completely agree with you, Henrik, that the... This is ambitious as fuck. They are really going for it. They have their sights set very, very high. And sadly, there's just not the skill to deliver it. Yeah, that's, that's where it comes down to. The, the lack of skill. You, you, can, you can see the attempt, and then you can see how nothing comes from it. Yeah. There are elements that I like, there are elements that I dislike. It just falls flat for me in, in the whole story that they're trying to do. There's so many aspects to discuss about, but just to pick one now, I would have wished that it would have centered more on uh, Linda Blair's character because it does take this this whole backstory aspect, but then kind of Reagan is not so connected to it after all. For example, the priest is able to go to Ethiopia and had this whole background investigation, and in the meanwhile nothing much happens of course the convulsions on the stage when she's doing the performance and that that's kind of the stuff that doesn't work for me that whole you know psychic telekinesis connection apparently to the father or what's happening happening in ethiopia i kind of like the the locust team it's just the whole africa team i think falls flat it's ambitious but it fails to be interesting yeah and the look of it too it this it looks more like it's trying to take place on Mars than it does in Africa. There's something about the set design of, you know, when that locust is flying over. It, it, it's very, very weird. Very weird. Probably a little problematic as well. The whole strange African voodoo tribe where they're all actually secret magical mystery, you know, magic men, you know, that racist trope of the magical black man or the magical black woman so it's probably a little problematic as well but yeah it was it's very 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 weird and in some aspects the special effects kind of worked pretty well but then on on some of the, some of the scenes it's completely false flat for example this guy falling off this ethiopian whatever high-rise village that they have i was curious to hear what you guys thought about these shots of the locust where we are sort of the point of view of the locust and there's this giant locust taking up the screen flying through the townspeople or through the tribes people yeah this is uh, something some artsy dartsy stuff again that was supposed to kind of take you on the bird's eye or locust's eye view of where the devil is flying and some shit like that but i didn't get anything out of it it's kind of rememberable. I mean, if I think about the film, I, I remember this. Oh, it's rememberable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But no, 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 it's not. What, what the thing that you remember from from Heretic is James Earl Jones cosplaying a giant ass locust. <laughs> That's what you remember. Who will transform into a tiger if you piss him off? Yeah, and spit out a tomato. <laughs> <laughs> 
and give you teleportation powers. <laughs> I will say that those images do stick with me. Here's the other image that sticks with me, which I'm going to give a little credit to. I, I, I thought it was not terrible, was when they're in doing the hypnosis thing. Yep. And you've got these very fascinating shots of Reagan sitting in the chair. You've got <laughs> Reagan possessed in the bed. And then she's like sort of reaching through to grab the heart of Reagan and to grab the heart of the doctor. And sometimes you're like, oh, these are two different shots. But then sometimes like, oh, no, that's a real hand sticking through. Like that that was a, probably a very good film school trial of how can we mix some of these styles and shots together. The whole close ups on the on the heart was a bit hunky, but I like the idea. It was a creepy scene. <laughs> yeah. The makeup was not nearly as good. I guess, I don't know if they didn't were unable to get the same makeup team because Reagan Possessed did not look nearly as good. But yeah, it's, it's sort of a cool, I like, you know, the experimentation of that film style. And is the flying thing actually Bumblebee or Locust? If you're listening to, was it Friedkin or Platy? It's, it's apparently a Bumblebee, but I think we're talking about a Locust here, fitting the theme oh, kind Lord. of. Yeah, so Friedkin was... Hating on heretic on a level that I would even call unprofessional. He was saying, I was a technical and a guy said, we just finished a print of Exorcist 2, do you want to look at it? And I looked at half an hour of it and I thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. It was horrible. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy, John Boorman by name. Somebody who should be nameless, but in this case should be named. Scurrilous, a horrible picture, end quote. Another quote went like this. Quote, the worst piece of crap I've ever seen, end quote. And, <laughs> and a freaking disgrace. And that film was made by a demented mind. And wow. he's kind of correct. Based on 30 minutes of watching the film and, you know... Well, well if, if you... If the scene you see, this being technical lapse, it might be that he didn't even see it in the finished order, but he saw, like... Like, it was a combination of clips from different parts of the film. But let's just say that the scenes you saw included the, the moment you all guys already mentioned, where Linda Blair is groping Kitty Vince's teeth while the demon Reagan is, is fingering her heart. Well, yeah, or if it if it was the moment when James Earl Jones is dressed up as like, like a giant-ass locust. Well, yeah, if, if it's the goddamn ending, well, most definitely, yeah. Well, most definitely, I think if, if if he would have seen James Earl Jones dressed up as a locust who spits tomatoes and can transform into a, a giant-ass tiger and teleport you into a laboratory, I would say that would be the high point and five-star rating. <laughs> I would say well, that's well, the it, high it, point. It would, be, it would be in the context of what else the film does have. Well, not laughs, or do does it? I'm taking this with a grain of salt, what Platy said. He said that apparently people were laughing at the theater and that he would have been the one initiating that laughter and and that some audience members would have been so angry that they would have been trying to out to get the producers or whoever was responsible for this, what I believe to be a piece of crap for Platy as well. Yeah, public performance began chasing Warner Bros. executives down the street within the first 10 minutes of the screening, says Friedkin. Oh, so because he was maybe a little bitter, he 
was maybe exaggerating the reactions of the people in the cinema to make the to make Borman feel bad. Maybe a bit impossible to know. I don't know. I can very well believe that the audiences were laughing at the cinema. Like, like hell, I, I I've seen this the third time seeing seeing the heretic, and I can never watch it with a straight face. It 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 fell so far. And you know what's also very sad? You know, we sort of touched on whatever the hell this facility was. The poor portrayal of this facility, this, like, insane use of this flashing lights. Was it a synchronizer? Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. The synchronizer and hypnosis. I mean, coming from the first film, who was using psychiatry and medicine in a very realistic way. And we were... To then go to this hodgepodge of pseudoscience <laughs> was such such a disservice it, it was it was but you know you know that the goddamn film is in in trouble when when it makes the decision to to name the demon basuzu and e- e- establish what demon is in question we're starting to get the effects of the sequel problem where you have to start giving some backstory. And once again, The Exorcist may be such of a movie that you don't need a sequel to or otherwise it's going to go into this hodgepodge. I, I don't know. They, they could have just, you know, go to the... Basically the same road that the, the later sequels take where they just have your generic demon and it's never actually said what it is. I never understood why the hell Heretic makes the decision to, to establish the name of the demon. Well, the novel, the original novel also did name the demon Pazuzu, which was understandably left out from the film, and I think it's much better for it. I also think if you're going to, you know, try to take advantage of this this IP and try to make some more money, to me, the original film set up what the sequel was, where when they're first trying to find a priest to do the exorcism on Reagan... And someone suggests Lancaster Marin. And someone says, oh, has he done one before? And you get this little bit of backstory. It said, yes, he did one many years ago in Africa. It supposedly lasted months. It almost killed him. To me, it seemed like they were creating that as this setup for a future sequel. Why else would you cast Max von Sydow as an 80-year-old man and put him in this old age makeup if it wasn't, oh, by the way, in the next film, it'll be Max von Sydow sans makeup. And we're going to show that African months-long exorcism. But that was not even the focus of this. It just there's so there's just so much wrong. There's so much wrong. Okay, let's give John Boorman some voice in this podcast for all fairness' sake. So he said, "Quote: It's called all comes down to audience expectations. The film that I made I saw as a kind of a repostate of the ugliness and darkness of The Exorcist. I wanted a film about journeys that was positive, about good essentially." And I think that audiences, in hindsight, were right. I denied them what they were wanted, and they were pissed off about it, quite rightly. I knew I wasn't giving them what they wanted, and it was really a foolish choice. The film itself, I think, is an interesting one. There's some good work in it. But when they came to me with it, I told John Kelly, who was running Warner Brothers then, that I didn't want it. Look, I said, I have daughters. I don't want to make a film about torturing a child, which is how I saw the original film. But then I read the three-page treatment for a sequel written by a man named William Goodhart, and I was really intrigued by it because it was about goodness. I saw it then as a chance to film a repostate of the first picture, but it had one of the most disastrous openings ever. There were riots, and we recut the actual prints in the theaters about six 
a day, but it didn't help, of course, and I couldn't bear to talk about it or look at it for years, end quote. So this audience expectations is a, is a huge part of this, of course. Audience was expecting, we know exactly what, more of the same. Or just a good movie. Also just a good movie. Yeah, I, I came to Heretic with a very, very open mind because I knew it's going to be a completely different animal. Still, it's not quite there. You can have, I think, a mixture of feelings about this film. I think that's the, the, the fair, fair way to go. There's some good shit. The backstory thing doesn't hold together. There are these um, non-grounded elements that kind of ruin it. Even if you would keep it kind of stylistically, visually kind of out there. Yeah, whatever this hypnosis ma- machine was, that was a bad idea to tie it so centrally around the plot. Can I make one last rant? Please, sir. <laughs> so, Regan, we find out the reason she was selected to be possessed is because she's special. She has this thing within her. She's a healer. It's the same thing with James Earl Jones's character, that this demon is looking for the good in people so that he can attack them and take away that good for the world, which is a wonderful idea, and I really wish we could have had a little more of that. So we get a demonstration of this healing ability that Reagan has whenever she encounters the patient who has, quote-unquote, withdrawn autism, which I don't even know if that's a real thing, but who can't speak. She then starts speaking. Everyone's crying. It's an emotional moment. Oh my gosh, it's so great. And the doctor comes up and says, did, did you do that? Yeah, she, she did. She goes, okay, well... Don't do that again until you're older, okay? I'm sorry, she just performed a medical miracle, and we're going to say don't perform, don't do that again until you're older? We're going to bypass the fact that she just literally performed a miracle? And we're going to just go about our day as if nothing happened. Yeah, have a little faith. Just have Reagan there take charge of the entire institute, and you you don't need to do any science anymore. Well, if they would have more faith on Reagan, they would also have more faith in, in exorcism, which is same kind of faith-based miracle healing. So, yeah, hard no, and Reagan should most definitely not mix up with the patients. Do we, Jesus Christ. Do we all three agree here that Reagan is, again, possessed in this film? No. No. Or, or she, she kind of is like the demon never left, but the demon kind of also does jack shit with Reagan. That's right. Like, like, like the de- demon is inside of her, and and the best the demon can master is the one jump attempt and then one Caesar, and that's it. That that that's the height of the power. Yeah, exactly. I just got the idea that we're dealing with some repressed or not so much repressed memories in these sessions, and that's kind of all of it. So. There's been some reviews that are pissed off about this aspect that Reagan is possessed again. I can perfect, I perfectly understand why, because kind of a, a hell of a letdown after the first film, which so strongly establishes that, that Reagan makes it out and is no longer possessed. Especially since the possession finally, I guess, is resolved in Heretic, and the demon finally properly leaves Reagan. Like the reason why why the demon does that at the end of the day is because Richard Burton starts to to d- decides to rip the rip the heart of the harlot dragon out of her goddamn chest. 
Like, yeah, I know. Let's let's I, let's talk about the aspect also that in the first one it was supposed to be a kind of a random occurrence. Okay, uh, the Ouija board was involved, but this was like a family from from a random location basically, and started to possess a normal child. Whereas in part two, she seems to have these special healing powers and is precisely selected for this job, right? Yep. Yeah, so that's a bit of... I, I also hated, hated that plot point at the bottom of my heart, precisely for the exact same reason. Do you guys have any more background on why Linda Blair refused to wear the makeup for this one? Because it is partly, I would say, sabotaging the, the end. Just having these greenish eyes, it's not really cutting it. So I thought it was some kind of a budget issue, like why the hell they are not going all the way with the effects here. But it's because Linda Blair apparently just didn't want to. Yeah, it can't be a purely budget decision since they obviously have the budget to make up Linda Blair's demon body double in the film. Like, like they obviously they, they do have the money to, to buy at least some type of demon possessed dragon makeup kit and use it. So it's it's not a monetary issue. It's most definitely it is Melinda Blair refusing to wear the makeup. Like the best guess I can make why that would be would be that Linda Blair would ho- would be hoping that Heretic would would work as the film where she could show off her talent without the makeup kind of hiding her face and. Like, like give, give this, this strong actress performance that then would open her the Hollywood doors or something like that. Because most likely what she was fearing was that if she would once again don the makeup, the makeup would hide her face. Like, like the Hollywood casting a- agencies wouldn't see her, they would just see Reagan. Yeah, there's kind of a point to it perhaps, because as we know in the first one, uh, her voice was dubbed in those scenes where she was wearing that makeup that took like, what, four hours to put on every every single day. So that's what kind of take out of the performance. And to be honest, I think Exorcist, once again, was improved probably by, by the fact that Linda Blair is not giving her voice to those scenes. Also because when I look at her performance in Heretic, it's from the material inferior, much inferior. Linda Blair... Surprisingly, is an actress who would seem to get worse the, the older she gets. She tried to do that exorcist comedy, Repossessed, was horrible there also. I think that... I, I agree with you, Henrik. I think that she she's not doing as good of work now or in subsequent years as she did in the in the beginning. And I think that part of that has to do with... I don't think a lot of child actors really even understand what acting is. They're more just sort of responding to what's happening and they're having to be, you know, sort of coached through scenes. And I think that for some kids, I'm saying kid, you know, anyone, you know, 15 or younger, I think sort of adapt to that pretty quickly and easily and can be very sort of natural because they're, they're not fully aware of, you know, what the whole process behind acting really is. And then as they get older, then they become more aware 
uh, it's then harder to get back to that. And I think that's the reason a lot of child actors maybe are very, very good as children and they're not good as adults. And it becomes then amazing when a child actor breaks through this sort of child actor syndrome and goes on to become something great, like a Drew Barrymore or Jodie Foster. Uh, but that's not the norm. I sadly think that Linda Blair is the norm. Yeah, she hasn't done much. I mean, her IMDb is looking very sparse uh, over the last decade. Mostly things where she's playing herself. N nothing against her. I think she's. I think she did a beautiful job in the first one, but I just don't think that can something that's something that can be recreated. Anything that you want to still grab on regarding the final scene, which might be a bit of a abysmal for you? Disappointing. Mostly just really boring. Yeah. By the way, they weren't able to shoot in the original house either in this one. So they had to stage somewhere the entire house that they needed to shoot. Okay, Exorcist 3, Cast and Crew, directed by William Peter Platti. Your thoughts, Henrik? Well, this is my second favorite film from the entire franchise. And the second film that I will count as being really goddamn good, it's not as good as the first one, but it, it does come quite close, quite close. Goddamn, we, you know, we are agreeing way too much in this episode. I, I, I hate to throw throw on the another log on the fire, but I, I completely agree. I think this is the second, the second best film in the franchise. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening. The performances are, are much better. I feel like I'm watching an actual uh, attempt at filmmaking and not some college film project done over a weekend there are some terrific performances i mean just terrific jason miller once again does a wonderful job i think george c scott is a pretty decent replacement for lee j cobb who played kinderman the cop uh, who sadly had passed away uh, i think george c scott does a great job coming in and taking over that that rough cop who has seen a lot of shit in his day um, and has that sarcastic wit and can sort of tease his priest friend. And there, there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening in this film. It's not fantastic. It's not equal to the first, but it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, no, but I also like the fact that it's giving this theater of the mind, like the first one, you can just imagine the murder by only showing some instruments of murder, like the scissors, and not so much the aftermath. Some hand here and there, and so you get some kind of glimpses of what happened. Brad Dorif, there are shots where he is delivering this monologue. In, in one shot, he's just in your face, visceral, it's like see the steam coming off of him. It's really spectacular. Yeah, the he will never get out monologue. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is one of the best acting from Brad that that I can remember seeing. And I typically I I do like my Brad Dourif. Is but for for uh, this podcast, Dourif is kind of an already known actor from David Lynch's Dune, which we have covered oh, previously yeah. on the podcast. Thoughts were ha were had about Dourif on on Dune. I didn't mind him too much, but his performance in 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 Legion is like really top notch. I I would say 
go as far as I say to top 10 or maybe even top 5 Brad Dourif performances. It's it's good. It's good. I'm not as impressed as you are. And I found the dialogue a bit too literary again. Well, it works more for Brad Dourif's role, but then these cops using it. Did you feel that, Zach? No, it didn't. I didn't really feel one way or the other. Uh, the, the dialogue didn't really stick with me as being too poetic or literary or or i think it could have been that i was going into this just keeping my fingers crossed that it wasn't going to be miserable to watch considering what i had just gone through watching the second one uh and so the fact that it was a step up was just a relief yeah yeah i too don't have a problem with that with the dog you can see that this is a film written and directed by a writer yes there, there are some some dialogue where, where you can see that, yeah, yeah, this is from someone who prefers books as his medium. But I still, I, I don't have a problem with, with the dialogue. I actually quite like a hell of a lot of George C. Scott's dialogue and and his monologues throughout the film. Like, for example, that, that whole monologue that he has about the car that is living in his bathtub. That doesn't give that much to the film plot-wise. It just helps to establish the, the connection that Kinderman has with Father Dyer and this kind of, kind of friendly intimacy that they have, that, that Kinderman can talk to Father Dyer about the situation in his home. Well, it's, and, it, it helps to establish that he's a smelly old fart, increasingly so, not having a shower for the last three days, and that having a Fish in your sink is more important than showering, which is pretty fucking weird. Also, just because you're like, do you only have one bathtub in your house? And also, could you not give yourself, I don't know what you call it in Finland, but in America, we call it a whore's bath, which is where you just fill the sink, your like bathroom sink or kitchen sink with water and then use a washcloth to sort of wipe yourself down. Uh, Is that not possible? Yeah, that's but that's just a Zach. That's just a horrible way to talk about the yeah. best way to clean yourself. <laughs> My apologies. Like, no, nobody should do that. <laughs> and also, nobody should start to take bath or showers while while there's a carp in in your bathtub. Most definitely not. I know, I know, I know that that the, the, the shape of the water is is all rage, and it's a really magnificent film. I'm all for it. Like go for it, Del Toro. But really, 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 if the, if there is if there's a carp in in your bathtub, it's not time for hot fish sex. Well, that would have been a kind of a plot device to jump the shark, take this into a new territory, whole franchise. Or jump the carp. <laughs> then again, they have to leave some material for the upcoming prequel. So the I believe speech is not in the DC cut, right? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, no. It should be. That speech should be in every cut of every film. Absolutely. What a nice rasp this actor has. Like, fantastic. Every time he's pissed off, you get this, you know, we're fine. We're fine. Fantastic. Mm. That's George C. Scott. Mm. It's mm. fantastic, but but yeah, it, it's not in in the director's cut. The, the speech itself, it's that the whole ending is is a studio mandated change for which I actually am all for 
in in this film. I kind of really like the, the the way how how the theatrical version of Legion ends with all all that crazy nonsense that that happens at the ending. Yeah, Bloody didn't want this part of the exorcism to be in the movie, but turns out it's working pretty well, and it's something that the audience can be probably seen crying for. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. Yeah. Like you can you can easily see why studio wanted to actually since you are making an exorcist film originally this was not even called exorcist like the book that Platy wrote it's not exorcist legion it's just legion and that kind of helps knowing that kind of helps to set the tone that Platy has when he started to direct the film and the, the whole you have to add the exorcist into the title that that came from studio but with that demand yeah granted you really must have at least one exorcism in your the exorcist movie when, when it comes to the original ending like this was something that i remember hearing like quite a lot before it, it was finally released like there was this rumor that going on in horror community for quite some time that, yeah, the studio mandated to, for Platy to change the ending of the film. And there is this never-before-seen original director's ending, which is so much better than what you got. Everybody was talking about this, and then we they, they finally released that ending. And that's just Kinderman walking into the cell and just shooting Karas, or the Gemini, however you want to name him. That scene works in the book really well harsh end to the story but it does not work well in in film form like it's kind of a really anti-climactic way to end your film just have kinderman walking into into a cell and just shooting a guy (laughs) that's it true that (laughs) it has to be mentioned that incredible hallway shot oh yes it's probably two three minutes long the camera doesn't move except for one brief moment where we sort of cut to see what the nurse is seeing and then just out of nowhere i i I don't even know how to describe it a figure in flowing white garb with what do you call those like what you would like trim a bush with completely terrifying yeah it is one of the most famous jump scares in in the horror movie history something that has been mimicked like time and time again after after Legion came out and it's a it's a legendary jump scare for a good reason it, and it's funny that it works so well even though the jump scare itself doesn't actually even culminate anything on that horrible like it's it harsh cuts before you actually see the actual killing once again yeah it's a combination of the horrifying music and the fact that you've been sh- staring at one size of image for who knows fucking how long and then there's this kind of a in this situation justified zoom in <laughs> and it works yeah there, there's kind of the length of that scene works in its advantage because since it takes so long it gives the scene ample of opportunities to kind of have he, have its fake outs there are several fake-outs preceding that the actual jump, where you think that now the jump's gonna happen, now the jump's gonna happen. Oh, it's it's nothing. It's it's returned back to the normal. And just before the jump finally happens, you notice that 
the, the security guard or the cop comes into into the other end of the hallway. So he has his eyes on the nurse the entire time, and that signals to you that since since a member of an authority is at presence, that nurse is currently safe. Nobody is actually gonna attack the nurse while while the guard is. Is sitting on that chair. They they keep the guard on the background so that you don't like you don't pay constant notice exactly what happens with the guard. And then all of a sudden another guard comes in and sing, signals the first one to come with me. And the guard leaves. And all of a sudden there is not that member of the authority in the space. And that's exactly the moment when the jump happens. And you're kind of expecting when the lady lady turns away that this is gonna be maybe the end of the shot and not, nothing's happening but <laughs> au contraire mon frere or however you say that in french oui C- can i do another rant and this is my last one of this episode i swear i'm really disappointed in a lot of horror films these days because they've become so rote formulaic predictable yeah. particularly when it comes to jump scares i hate jump scares yes. i hate them I hate them. They are the cheapest form of horror. And I don't think that... And this this hallway shot is not a traditional jump scare. I think it's elevated above that. It's these traditional jump scares that I can't stand that, that require no discipline or talent to create them. They give you a scare based on uh, not any skill or setup, but just on this sheer primordial response that's in the base of our brain stems that when there is a sudden stimuli we we're we're scared literally children can do this children do this like to their mother when they know the mother's coming around the corner from the kitchen and they say boo i mean literally children can accomplish this kind of jump scare i'm sick and tired of it in horror films they're cheap and i don't want them anymore Okay, rant done. Yeah, I I have to agree with you. If if you make jump scare correctly, it can actually be a really effective way to, to have a sudden spike in, in the horror atmosphere without it actually be, becoming obnoxious or something that, that grinds you. Like, yeah, this hallway shot is an example of that. It's a way to do it correctly. Yeah, mm. I guess that that's enough of, of Legion. <laughs> that a film that forever if nothing else can stand as a cinematic testament that there was a period in time when fabio's nose was not broken oh my god fabio <laughs> fucking fabio he's he's one of the goddamn angels in in the dream sequence i'm so glad the camera lingered on his face for approximately 17 minutes because i was like is that Fab- is that that looks a lot i think that i it is no yes no yes that is Fabio. What is he doing in this movie? <laughs> he's he's just hanging around, same way as Samuel Jackson is just hanging around, or or Larry King is just hanging around for no apparent reason. He's just there. But I guess uh, it's time to say, go Finland, go go Finland, go go. <sighs> Exorcist: The Beginning, Rennie Harlan. Back to the roots and back to well, if not Ethiopia, Africa. So we're kind of we're kind of having a lot of th- the same themes from all the previous movies. 
And like somebody put it in the words, something like the first three movies, thematically, they are quite different movies, all of them. But this is the kind of first movie that kind of mixes up different elements from these three films. Because these two films are basically the same film, but they're just, one is the Snyder Cut version of the other. Perhaps we can tackle them both at the same yeah. time. I, I would actually agree with that. Yeah, somebody said that Rennie Harlin is not selling his soul to the devil by making this film. I would say that he does sell his soul to the devil. Or it's just doing the typical Rennie Harlin movie. You know, this film has jump scares or, or it has scenes that kind of lead nowhere and you're just waiting for some scare to happen and it doesn't really carry the narrative forward. I'm more precisely talking about scenes such as where Isabella Skorupko is, I don't know, having her demonic period. So we kind of keep... Nice double entendre. Yeah, we kind of keep uh, lingering on the scene for a long time. And this is exceptional in the Exorcist franchise that we actually have a scene that is waiting for the jump scare or scare for a long time, and there is no story to tell here. I do not have very positive things to say about either of these. So if you have anything positive, let's start there. Well, actually, I, actually, I do. I do. Are you ready for it? Let's ready. hear it. Gary has been itching for a fight. We can finally have a fight going on here. <gasps> oh, goody. Okay. So so now we are approaching the double whammy. This is Exorcist at the beginning and Dominion. Going on at the same time. And Exorcist at the beginning is better than Dominion. They both suck ass. But Dominion sucks even more. Absolutely not. Most definitely, yeah. <laughs> Let me raise one point of many. This uh, intense time taken on this false focus on the village boy who is billed as the antagonist, but then is completely thrown away. No, 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 no. The, the guy you have invested all your time during this movie has nothing to do with the whole thing. And out of the blue, it's Isabella Skorupko, who is your antagonist for the night. Oh, okay. And we're supposed to feel scared about this character that we kind of know pretty well already now taking this demonic possession okay yeah perhaps in a way of linda blair's character but what dominion i feel does better is that we don't even know the real person too well in the story and there's also this language barrier going on and then suddenly this guy that we don't really know anything about takes this demonic possession shit on him and starts speaking English, floating around and teleporting uh, around in the different shots, which I thought was masterfully played, and the whole unexpected face twisting and morphing. All of that is that is the stuff that I turn turn in for in the Exorcist films. That antagonist worked. It most definitely did not work. Not the late. And what most definitely didn't work was Isabella Skorupko's makeup as the demonic position version. That was bad. Yeah. Here's the thing, here's the thing. Uh, like I said, they are both terrible films, and you shouldn't watch neither one of them. But what actually, actually works here is that Rennie Harlin's version, while it's terrible, it's it's consistently terrible. Like, it's, e it's equal level of shit throughout the film. Whereas Dominion starts... Particularly good, if if not really as a really good film, and they just just slowly falls down 
continuously until it finally manages to hit the rock bottom, which is somehow even below Renny Harling's line of shit. It manages to go even lower than, than the beginning. And the major part why that happens is that the, the dumb fuck ending that Dominion has. That's, that's like the, the final nail on the coffin. The absolute ending. Up until that point, the Dominion has been a film that starts good, then gets really boring, like, my god, I have to fight in order to stay awake. And it, it also, like, lowers, lowers, and lowers closer to the shit line as it does so. And then finally the ending, and it just plummets through the floor. Right. And there you are, like Dominion, the film that has you wallowing in shit. So, are you like overemphasizing now the last scene where there's this uh, completely unnecessary "please write me" scene? Does that? No, no, no. Go- I'm I'm overemphasizing the moment when Father Karras wins the demon and walks out of the the church. Shalas Cave. Well, it was an easy win, but other than that, what's your problem with the scene? Basically, exactly how much Father Merin wins in that moment. Goddamn super priest. He he beats the devil, he solves domestic abuse, he solves colonialism, climate change, he prays the gay away most likely, and hell of a certainly he would have also toppled the entire Third Reich had he just found the dastardly demon in time. I think it's just really nothing works in the beginning. Something works in Dominion. For example, the whole establishing of the plotline of the Father Merin, where it, it is precisely about his journey from not believing because of that horrifying Nazi scheme in the beginning that haunts him. And then in the end, he returns to God. That's kind of a logical way of doing things. Whereas the, the beginning is not so much about that. And I feel that the kind of whole backstory and what is happening around the town becomes really irrelevant, especially when you have this kid who is not even our bad guy. So it's kind of fumbles, but at least Dominion, it naturally develops from scene to scene and tells whatever it tells, interesting or not inter- interesting. But, uh, but you can just tell when you start watching Dominion that you know, there's certain consistency about this film, unlike in the Rennie Har- Harlan version. I, I don't know if, if what that says about Dominion, that the best kind of a defense you can give it to it is that it, it flows mechanically. Consistent flow. Yeah, I mean, its consistency is based on the idea that it was at least a complete, from start to finish, creation by a, by a person, whereas... Rennie Harlan comes in and has to take some footage that's already been filmed, some plot points that have already been written and established, and he has to, I don't know, Frankenstein together some new picture from it. Yeah, in in something like five or six months. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's going to be a Frankenstein nature to it just because of that. But oh, Dominion. I mean, yeah, its consistency is. I, I would say the the best thing that you can say about it, <laughs> and that's not great. No, no, that the problem with Dominion, like like Renny Harlin's films, problem like you and Curry pointed it out, is that as a film, as something that has been built, it's all over the place. That the scenes don't completely flow. 
and there are moments when the plotline is is kind of forgotten and then brought back in and and stuff like that like it doesn't work mechanically dominion perhaps works better mechanics wise but the problem is that the whole story of of dominion just isn't good no no it's not i have my gripes about the the lieutenant who goes completely berserk and is there just to kill people because we have to get the blood moving but on the other hand Renny harlin does other tropes have to have a beautiful lady with love interest kissing her uh, having meaningless jump scare scenes planting the finish but, flag <laughs> but but what what the beginning actually does have is some mystery not good mystery and, and the payoff to the mystery is 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 complete dog shit like, like the whole oh this is the spot where lucifer fell and it's super cursed. No, that that's like like absolute nonsense and and not good good mystery at all. But at least there there's like some mystery. Whereas whereas the Dominion it, it starts by having mystery and then it just kind of forgets the whole mystery. And then it just like only one question in its mind like what's going on with this one keyboard kid who is healing super fast? And you are going like. The cripple is being possessed for god damn it. Like, like, come on guys, just wake up and realize that you are in the Exorcist franchise movie. It's an obvious possession, but no, that's the only mystery that Dominion actually manages to hold on to. But until it finally hits hits the, the, clo- the ending where yeah. Father Merin just saves everybody. Yeah, 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 you have to take into account that it's now secular Merin. Merin is following the script and... He has no concept or idea of demonic possession or understanding of such things. And, but anyway, I, I like the, the build-up that I would say is quite masterful to the first proper horror moment of Dominion. Like this devil's depiction in the film, in general, I think it's bone-chilling. I love the losing of control in the end when the devil keeps teleporting in the different shots and he is unable to kind of read the script because... He has to focus on this teleporting demon and, and this subtle facial morphing that I was talking about. That was that. That's the biggest chills that I've had in this in this series since the first one. Yeah, I did absolutely nothing to me. I have to even go as far that I haven't had this much fun with horror antagonist in a long time, probably years. It was spine tingling shit when it gets there finally. It certainly took its time. And that's okay. Spoken like a true Halloween fan. Okay. I I haven't seen a proper horror antagonist in years. Yeah, I don't like this, the the bait and switch that Rennie Harlan does with. We think it's the boy. We think it's the boy. Oh, nope. It's the uh, Isabella Skorupko. I don't like that bait and switch. Don't like that she looks completely normal, but then as soon as you find out, uh, oh, she's the one possessed. Now she looks like she looks like shit like she looks like she hasn't eaten or had any fluids for three weeks just all of a sudden i don't like that but with dominion the the boy which by the way the boy who played cheche i think is his name yeah is now like a big filipino pop star Hmm? And all I want to do is go get some albums and like listen to his stuff and see how far he's come yeah, I'm... but uh, that was a very weird choice to do the whole sort of androgynous look like that. That was a choice. 
I mean, traditionally, demons have, have been male, uh, and especially if we're talking about Lucifer, if we're talking about Satan, he, he was definitely male uh, and was also supposed to be beautiful and very attractive. I, there was just, man, I just, I, I, I can't, it is hard for me to pick which one of these is worse, but I'm leaning towards Dominion. I, I, I too, I, I admit freely that the bait and switch in the beginnings end, it is terrible. It's it's absolute absolute dog shit. But at least that's a plot twist. Well, somehow, whereas, whereas Dominion is like we have this possessed kid here lying on lying on the hospital bed, and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on with the obviously possessed kid. Sounds like the first exorcist. Just, wait, wait, you're you're half of the entire running time of Dominion, which is a two-hour film almost, is that you're just waiting for the characters to catch up with something that you already know. Which is the fact that the kid is possessed. Yeah, and it's a glorious moment when he finally shows himself. So much build-up. It's it's not. It's it's laughably bad, I would say. What what's laugh, laughably bad is the bait and switch in Harlan's version for sure. It seems like a half-assed idea. Like let's throw it out there. We are not aware we were gonna go with this kid's kid plot. So let's just switch to Skorupko and be done with it. Yeah, it, it is. It is. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you. It's yeah. it's laughably bad. It is. It is. Like, I, I hate the beginning balance switch ending. I, I do. And and the whole epic boss fight that Merin has against that the possessed Skropko, the, the, the demon, the, the whole moment where they are in a long ass tunnel and the demon is just running towards Merin and Merin just, you know, one shots the demon with the cross. Like, like all of that. Laughingly bad. Absolutely, like, terrible material, absolute dog shit. But so is Dominion. Mm. Basically, everything after the first 45 minutes in Dominion is almost unbearable turd. Well, can we agree at least on the CGI? That there's a turd for you in both versions. <sighs> and maybe specifically in Dominion, all these full daylight hyenas shown in all their glory. Oh, in nomine patris et viriet spiritus sancti. But, but there, there, there you see, Gary, there, I, I told you back in the cannibalism episode, you just can't fake animal cruelty, man. You can tell it's fake. I was really hoping that you would now be here defending the awful CGI hyenas and be like, well, I completely believed it. It was so confusing because almost all the animal shots in the film whichever animal it in every shot is it's just whether it's a cow or bull or whatever it is that's a cgi bull or cow eating a cgi hyena so in a sense like the, the cgi craze of the early 2000s in full swing it seems and making uh cairo you know the establishing shot that lands in the city to the real shots that combination shot was complete shit lots of shit yeah. But what was not shit in, in Dominion is, is the fact that the, the film clearly establishes that the villagers think, think that the crippled kid is, is cursed because he's crippled. They see it fit to, to beat him, beat him up and leave him like like bleeding with, with bleeding sores on his body, lying on a, on a filthy street. And then the film comes in and establishes that the villagers were right. That kid is and you should have beaten him to death and saved everybody that trouble. Any thoughts on, thoughts on the Pocahontas kind of territory that the film takes you? Like you have the the bridge who come to there to, 
to do their little expedition they start being aggressive towards the villagers, shoot a couple of them down, and then, of course, to balance it up, you have to have these natives, I guess, who go onto the same path, just to make it 50-50. I liked it. It, it was one of the, the plot elements that I did like. I, I was really banking a lot, a lot on, on that plot line. Seeing how Dominion mostly does not have that much mystery in it like it, it doesn't have that many like smaller question marks around its big question mark which is why was the church buried in the first place so when it comes to the, the whole colonialization theme i was really putting my money on that that's gonna pay off that's gonna pay off for the longest time unlike the beginning dominion really looks like that's gonna be good, like, that's the film that can actually utilize the colonialization. And then the ending happens, and it all comes falling down, burning around you, like... <sighs> like, Father Merin goes in and beats the final boss demon, and the whole colonialization conflict that has been brewing with between the Brits and the tribe throughout the film, it just magically gets, gets resolved. Yeah, absolutely. Like, magic, magic. Holy powers. shit! Yeah, that—that's—that's the, that's the one aspect. Like when, when I said that I like the beginnings ending more. Th this is exactly the type of bullshit that that I meant. Even though, even though, even though the beginning, uh, the ending sucks and the movie is terrible. At least, at least in in Harlin's film, the massacre ends up happening. Father Merin beating the final boss demon doesn't all of a sudden mean that the colonialization is solved and the tension between the Brits and, and the tribe just magically goes away. The, the whole kind of a, we are just gonna kill each other right this mo minute moment, it just continues on and they end up killing each other, which in the end reframes Merin's whole decision to, to join the church. In, in Harlin's version, Father Merin is, is someone who has lost his faith earlier because he had to make the decision and point 10 innocent Polacks to Nazi commander who ex has those, those 10 executed. Having to make that decision like, these are 10 people I'm gonna sacrifice and not finding help from God in that moment. That is the reason why at the beginning of the film, Father Merin has lost his faith and is now a faithless archaeologist. In the course of the film, Father Merin ends up in a in a place where the Brits and the tribe are about to kill each other. There is the whole possessed the lady who has kidnapped the, the, the child. And Father Merin has to get back into his, his priest mode in order to fight the demon. And at the end, Father Merin fights the demon kills the possessed lady in the process, but manages to save the child, and that's the only goddamn thing that he manages to save. So, after that, when Father Merin decides to rejoin the church, he does that because he has seen that with God on his side, he can battle the demon and perhaps save that one person. He can save the next child. Possibly. He can't stop the carnage, he can't necessarily even save the, the person that is actually possessed, but he might just save somebody. And that's enough for him to join the church. 
In Dominion, however, it's it's the same setup. Father Marin has lost faith because Nazi commander is now faith as archaeologist. The possession happens that there is the tribe and the priests are about to kill each other. Father Merin goes into the, the demon boss final battle, wins the battle. That means that the tension between the tribe and the priests goes away. The tension inside the village where that, that one dad is about to kill the doctor lady, that just vanishes all of a sudden. Basically all the bad things in, in the region, they just go away because Merin beat the demon final boss. So when Merin in Dominion decides to rejoin the, the church, he does it because it's the only lo logical choice for him to do, because in that film, with God on his side, Father Merin now can basically solve absolutely everything. Like I said, he would have been able to topple the entire Third Reich and save the, the Pollocks at the beginning of the film if he just would have found the demon final boss of that region in time. Yeah, but the point is that once he beats the demon, then the villagers realize that, that what was cursing the town was the demon, and now that the demon is dealt with, there is no reason to fight. Yeah, and that's kind of bullshit when your framework is colonialism. It's, it's kind of like that the British massacre in, in Gandhi's India wouldn't have happened if Gandhi would have just found the, I guess, the demon in that case. That's kind of like, kind of the same same thing in the in the beginning, right? But that the uh, does it like it can cancel out the deaths of the soldiers? I'm not quite sure. What the hell is happening in this? No, no. In in the beginning, that precisely does not happen. It does not cancel it out. They kill each other. It's a complete massacre. Yeah, and in despite the, the demon, as as the beginning points it out, colonialism and colonialistic violence is. Not something that you can just, you know, win by defeating a demon. Oh, come on. You can take some artistic freedoms here. You you can, you can, you can. And I'm, I'm not saying that Dominion is a bad film because it chose to treat colonialism in this way. Not necessarily. It could have worked, but the ending just is bad in Dominion. You, you would have to make like a super good ending in order to make, have enough weight on, on the situation so that your argument, I made one good thing, I, I defeated one thing, so all the bad goes away, would actually work. Especially when you are dealing with real life cruelty, like colonialism. And Dominion's ending just isn't strong enough. It's far removed from being that that strong of an ending. Uh, what the hell was this blister guy? This is one of those random, disgusting things, sort of in Harlan's version, where there's this wandering around weirdo who appears on Scorpio, goes bed, goes to kind of steal booze, I believe, and then suddenly gets killed by the devil. Completely pointless character, right? Just amping up yeah. the kind of the disgusting the feeling of disgust and violence in the film. Yeah, that that's the main main reason for that character. He's also really unnecessary. He's supposed to be kind of presenting the somewhat racist the, the racist attitudes of the colonialists. Like he's he's a westerner and yeah. he he looks at the local people like 
like trash. Like there, there's that one moment when he's about to throw that bottle at the, at the one kid and 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 stuff like that. Obviously, he's he's meant to be some type of avatar for the colonialist oppression and and the, this this feeling of superiority and and a racist attitude that stems from from that superiority. I I get that. But that point is unnecessary because you raise the exact same point with the British military, who behaves on ex- the exact same same way, not as openly violent as at first, but they are immediately like from from the scene one they are using like dictatorial language. They are referring the the locals as why was it mutts, and later on like the commander is is openly executing that that one villager so so you get get the exact same sentiment that the same point is being raised now by two different factors the british army and and the one who has the blisters on his face the the main main plot focus for for the blister face guy in the beginning is to be the the, the sacrificial westerner that the military all of a sudden is really sad about and decides to use an, as an excuse for their acts of violence against the tribesmen. That also is is like really stupid decision from Harleen. And this is something that Dominion does do better. Because in Dominion the sacrificial westerners are two soldiers from the commander's squad. So he now has a personal tie to tie to the westerners who have been killed, and there is also the responsibility that the superior has to those under his command, which is how Dominion explains the commander's decision then to walk into the town and execute a villager. A couple of minus points to Dominion still about the eventually killing Father Francis of. I mean, this this was. Maybe the most likable character, apart from Stellan Skarsgård. And the kind of a voice of reason for Father Merin. Well, I guess Father Francis outgrew his usefulness, so off we go with this character. But didn't need to go, didn't need to go. I'll say something nice. There is a a particular shot that uh, was very terrifying for me. I thought it was very well done when he's down in the crypt and he's trying to... Oh, how did you phrase it, Henrik? final boss demon and he is uh, on his stomach and he's having to crawl through this like tunnel and the tunnel gets smaller and smaller and smaller and it's completely dark except for his lantern i thought that was very effectively done it made me feel claustrophobic and terrified of what was about to happen i feel like i have to say something nice because i really did not like it (laughs) well when it comes to claustrophobia or feeling of terror I have to say that the Dominion's demon kind of shifting behind Stellan Skarsgård while he's reading the Bible, that was the, the most terrifying aspect of these mm. two. But this is, again, you know, feelings and tastes thing. Don't ever touch me again, priest! I love that moment. Fantastic. <laughs> Although the dialogue could have been better, still. I just couldn't help but laugh. In nomine Patris et Filiet Spiritus Sancti. Okay, uh, I think we're done with this. This sh- shit. Special mention for an actor goes to. My special mention goes to Jason Miller. My special mention goes to Linda Blair in Exorcist 2. It was absolutely terrible performance. 
<laughs> well, that's a way to do a special mention too. I'll go with the good ones that George C. Scott in Exorcist 3. We are the Legion, we are the army, BTS. Okay. So anyone you would like to point out, uh, bring to the top, to our attention, some very small role or even big one. Uh, I got to bring out Mercedes McCabridge. Well, I have to mention Linda Blair, but it, in the original Exorcist, still legendary. <laughs> legendary. Can we also appreciate how little of a fuck the woman in the horse carriage again cares about Father Marin, kind of nonchalantly, like, what are you doing here, poor bastard? What resonated with you the most? You know, I first saw this film, as I mentioned, as a child, young adult, teenager, when I was a believer, and now seen it again as an adult and not a believer. And so to me, what resonated with me is different when I think about the first time I saw this and when I watch it now. I would say that watching it then, what resonated and stuck with me most was the devil is powerful and it's important that we stay faithful to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Nowadays, <laughs> it is how... Uh, adept Friedkin is with his pacing to not blow his load so quickly and to give us a little breadcrumb after a little bit bigger bed breadcrumb and then a little bigger piece and a little bigger piece until we reach our climax. Yeah, it's interesting how we are not believers, but still this kind of a possessed demon material, it really grabs us and tingles our spine. So there's something to it, maybe on some kind of a primal level maybe the, the the horrific images have to be mentioned like the twisting head the spider walk and the the master stabbing yourself with the crucifix because th that is not masturbation let's say it's a master stabbing Oof. and the teleporting floating face morphing demon in dominion yep how would you describe these films in one adjective if you can i had a bit of a trouble there first uh i would say intense demonizing i i go with thought provoking because at some level somehow each film manages to do that it, it's because of different reasons like in in exorcist one and three it's because you are thinking about the the whole the, the dialogues that that the characters have about religion and faith and in in heretic it's, it's because you are actually trying to piece together what the story of the film really is because it's told kind of really sloppily. It's like the pieces are all over the place and hidden under visual metaphors and stuff like that. With with the prequels, they are thought-provoking because you're kind of try, trying to figure out which one is is truly the more, more worse film at the end of the day. Also, because you are trying to figure out exactly how you are going to feel about the, the whole British cavalry colonialism aspect that the films tackle. Yeah, once again, I would say that the movies that were the worst were the most interesting to discuss. Favorite quote, if any. I mean, there's something to be said for let Jesus fuck me. I mean, that is true. that's intense. That's strong. But I mean, I'm also a big fan of I believe in slime and stink. Mm. Also also strong uh, but the one that i quote uh semi-regularly is timmy timmy why you do this to me timmy timmy why which is uh horrible but i like to quote it 
uh, apart from the famous ones. I kind of like the delivery and the content of I brought you a hamburger, father. And we're fine! <laughs> <laughs> and of course, mm. slime and stink. And in every crawling. There's a lot of growling that he does. And I, I hear yeah. that in your work, Kari. Thank you very much. <laughs> Would you consider to watch these films again? The first one and Legion, yeah. And no for the rest. Yeah, one and three. First one, no doubt. And the second one, not anytime soon. I won't be popping it on just for entertainment anytime soon. Third, yeah. Fourth, nope. Fifth, yeah, at some point. Do you think these films will have any staying power or legacy? Well, yeah, first one, yes. The rest, not so much. Third one, of course, will have this fan second favorite place. Like cult following. Yeah. The first one, obviously, will have. The second one, I, I, I would say no. Uh, Heretic is, is a movie that is infamous for being one of the worst sequels ever made. It's not. Uh, it totally is not. It's not that bad. Well, I it, it's it's really it's really bad. It's bad, yeah. Uh, Legion, uh, Legion has had somewhat of a renaissance. When it comes to four and five, I already forgot half of the films, and we are still doing the recording, so most definitely no. God bless the DVD collections were heretic. And the beginning and Dominion will always have repeated viewings until the rest end of times. Fine. Would you recommend these films? One, yes. Two, no. Three, yes. Four, five, no. Yeah, one, yes. Two, it's not as intelligent as it thinks it is by any means. It's But it's a hodgepodge. It kind of gets tangled into its own mythology and then forgets to ward off the cocaine and gets like uh, epileptic seizures there. No, no, no recommendation. The Exorcist 3 Legion, yes. 4 and 5, no, no. Yeah, I, I too, I, I have the third, the one and third sentencing already given given out. Yeah. Uh, what's the order of preference? For me, first one, obviously, then Legion, then Dominion, then Heretic, then the beginning. The original number 3 Number two, oh gosh, and then Rennie, and then Dominion. Uh, and to give you guys the correct answer, the proper order, it is the original, <laughs> then Legion, then the beginning, and then Heretic and Dominion. You guys are possessed. The the biggest biggest problem why why Heretic and Dominion are in are behind the beginning is that. I had trouble to stay awake with, with Heretic and with Dominion. Every single time I have the exact same goddamn experience with these films. With, with Dominion, it's, it's even so bad that every single time I watch the film, I am on board with the movie for the first 45 minutes. Then the next 45 minutes, I'm like, oh my god, this is gonna be rough. And the last 45 minutes, I'm not even, like, I'm, I'm struggling to pay attention. I'm just happy when the fin film finally wraps up. I have, like, minute marks how my attention span is, <laughs> is gonna last with Dominion. Yeah, I fear it's gonna be for Dominion and the beginning. It's gonna happen so in my memory that 
in a few days these are both gonna be completely wiped out of my memory in the same vein as very subpar Japanese horror film. You really know you're watching The Exorcist films when... You really know you're watching The Exorcist films when you get a craving for pea soup. You really know you're watching The Exorcist films when you solve the entire British colonialism by beating that damn crippled kid. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) You really know you're watching The Exorcist films when... You realize that the good old unorthodox filming techniques, such as smacking and physical injuries and lying and other forms of psychological torture, provide the best results. (laughs) That was dark. I guess that would kind of do it, but dear listener, would you recommend the films? Come tell us on our social media pages. Any thoughts before we head out? I think we covered it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if this was worth it for us. It's done. Now we have watched all the Exorcist films. We didn't talk about Friedkin's terrible documentary, The Devil and Father Amorth. Thank God, because that one sucked ass too. Perhaps someday we can do a follow-up where where we will talk about Friedkin's documentary and every single film called The Exorcist. (laughs) I'm turned on just thinking about it. We would like to invite you to continue this wonderful conversation with us online on our social media pages and we'll hope you'll leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and we have some unfortunate sad news for you listeners no we're not gonna quit but (laughs) well that would have been the positive news (laughs) (laughs) so yeah Zach go ahead Uh, yes unfortunately I will be taking a step back from the Flick Lab my dear Flick Lab you motherfucker. No. But your mom was so attractive, I couldn't help it. Yeah, the power of a secondary podcast comparison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will be uh, moving over to a podcast that my workmate and best friend and I are starting called With a Gay Twist. So if you want to hear news and politics, but with a gay twist, come on, uh, come on over and check us out. And uh, if um, you're bitter like Henrik and Kari are, then you can just head over and give us a one-star rating on your favorite podcast <laughs> app. Yeah, and blacklist the upcoming Patreon page, because that's a grown-up <laughs> thing to do. Yes. <laughs> you can send a, a complaint to Apple Podcasts and say, this contains child porn or something, you know, and get a shutdown. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a douche move to pull off. It would be. The F- Here comes the FBI. FBI's knocking I, on the door. I, I kind of kind of love that concept. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing you hear from us from your previous podcast is a is a FBI criminal in- investigation. <laughs> Remember, payback's a bitch. <laughs> so be careful. It, it, it's a. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that the podcast industry is a cutthroat business. Dog eat dog. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a bitch uh, in the background, so uh, just <laughs> you never know what's gonna happen <laughs> when, when I'm betrayed like so you're this. Saying I yeah, I mean that, someone, that, that, that someone should be testing yeah. my food before I eat it. Someone should be checking my mail before I open it. Yeah, you just you just watch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I'm not. I'm I'm not saying, Zach, that you should fear any retribution from Kari's end, but there's a reason why I have been doing this podcast for three years, and passion is not that. 
No, we wish Zach all the best and the choices that he he makes. Those are the decisions that are correct for you, of course, and and uh, it's something that is very close to you because you you studied public policy. So and also it combines gay stuff. So what could be more? I mean, how does, how does it get better? The only sad thing is we won't be spending any time talking about the filmatic experience of gay porn. And that's something yeah. that I was hoping at least at some point we would do on the Flick Lab. Yeah, so... Yeah, who, who knows? It doesn't get any better than in the Flick Lab. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Maybe in the future. And maybe you can revisit us as, as a guest in, in some future episode. I'm 100% down. I'm on record. I would love to come back as a guest to talk about anything you think I would be able to give you some expertise in, whether that be something gay related something american related you know i'm i guess i can be your american culture attache yeah to be kind of a hyperbole but not really but it's the saying that we often say i've loved every second when we've done this for the last <laughs> six months <laughs> and uh it's sad to let you go yeah i have also loved it the two of you are spectacular and i I'm going to have so many memories and can't and can't wait to just continue to listen to what the two of you do. I can't wait to hear Kari continue to go on and on about cinematography. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear Henrik just just being Henrik. <laughs> and of course, at any moment to, for the, the topic of cannibalism to come up and the topic of violence in cinema. And of course, I will never forget pussy. <laughs> I will never forget it. See, see, I told you, I told you, it it was worth to check it, check out the bunny. <laughs> now, now you have that experience. We we all have that shared oh, experience. Oh, we all it's have that stay experience. Yeah. <laughs> but I am so thankful for the two of you. So many films I probably would not have watched on my own that I got to watch because of the two of you. I think it's the great thing about the Flick Lab is bringing some films that people maybe wouldn't necessarily watch into the forefront. And some of those I truly will, other than the pussy one, there are some of them that I truly <laughs> will like remember and recommend to others and possibly rewatch. There, there really have been some, some really good gems in there. So I'm going to be eternally thankful for those and i will be on the bandwagon of preaching to people you need to watch unknown soldier it is the greatest mm -hmm. war film ever made so that forever will be my flag that i wave for you that is some big big words that's very cool to hear that we've been valuable and thank you for providing alison kilkenny as a guest oh yes absolutely she was so much fun but uh, zach where can people then find you in the coming months and weeks you can find me over at on twitter at with a gay twist that's the podcast's twitter it's also on instagram and you can go to with twist.com to find the the website and we're dropping episodes bi-weekly every other monday mm -hmm. the show should be well underway when this episode comes out yes our first episode dropped january 3rd all right it's the circle of life we will continue doing episodes without Zach, <laughs> and uh, we'll see what the future will bring to us. 
Henrik. Yeah. <laughs> it's again between the two of us. We we truly are the last and the faithful in in movie podcast sphere. Yeah. But yes, uh, hey man, thanks for the times that we were able to keep you and and you know sincerely, good luck, you magnificent bastard. <laughs> yeah, lots of gratitude from my end. Back to the two of you. Best of luck. Can't wait. I'm going to still be listening to the Flick Lab, so uh, don't be talking shit about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the, the very next episode. <laughs> yeah. Who was that one guy? I can't remember his name. That, that American, <laughs> that, that Yang. Yeah, I think Jack. Was that his name? Was it Jack? Something like that. Yeah, it, it was some, some dude who had all the wrong opinions. <sighs> Idiot. But you know those Americans. They're so they're so yeah, entitled. Most likely a Trump supporter. Uh, probably, probably. <laughs> but dear listeners, Zach is gonna hang around for one more episode. That's gonna be about the Blender movies. In a fortnight, we will look at the Blender short movies with Zach. Yeah. So you better enjoy the next episode, dear listeners. I've been Gary Oyla. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Zachary Penn. Find me on Twitter at ZacharyPenn48. And I'm Henrik. Don't find me and take me to church, you filthy hosier man. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. See you in a fortnight. Until then. Later. You don't get to say that! <laughs> <laughs>